<laughs> oh, very good. There's lots of other announcements on the bulletin. You can read them all. I would like to stop and uh, pray. Um, I think several of you know about Bruce Miles, a long, long-term pastor at Rocky Mountain, um, has had his own share of afflictions, and he is, he is in um, serious trouble, inoperable cancer now, and um, so we need to pray for him. We need to lift him up, and we've been praying for Julia, and um, we've been lifting you up. We did this this morning as well, that you would continue to feel better and that the Lord would be with you. We had uh, Don and Patty Wolfer here in the first service, so we've been praying for them for a long time. And Don's been through chemo, radiation, surgery, major surgery, and he just got the results back. And uh, he, uh, no evidence of cancer. Yes. He even looked pretty good. I went up to him, I said, man, you look pretty good. Well, that's kind of a, you know, don't go too far with that. But he said, yeah, I know, I'm still pretty ugly. I said, yeah. He looked great in the first service. Color was good. And so the Lord, the Lord has responded. And uh, we're very grateful. We've been praying for Father Michael off and on for a year and a half. And uh, he's restored to ministry and is pastoring again. And so it's nice to, isn't it, to partner together on behalf of people that need our help, uh, need extra grace for a season in their life. So let's stop and pray for these things. Father, we do lift up... Uh, Bruce Miles, Pastor Miles, Lord, we, uh, a very faithful man, Lord. Uh, I don't know him well, but he made it a point to meet me when I got here. And, and um, a man who has served you faithfully all of his life, has been through his own long series of afflictions, and now, Lord, to be faced with interoperable cancer. What that means, Lord, is that it's completely in your hands. Uh, he has no other options available to him. So we pray that you would step in and intervene on behalf of he and his family and uh, take care of the cancer. Lord, we continue to pray for Julia and, Lord, her family as she struggles and continue to strengthen her, Lord, and to help her to heal and um, show her family grace and introduce yourself to them in new and fresh ways that they haven't seen before um, that reminds them that you are their God and they are your children. Lord, we do um, pray for uh, with gratitude and humility and thankfulness for Father Michael, Lord, that he's, that he's pastoring probably today. His uh, flock is so grateful, and so are we. Our community is so blessed to have him. Keep him in health, Lord, and make sure the cancer stays gone. And Lord, thank you for Don and Patty. It was so great to see them last service. And, uh, thanks for answering our prayers, Lord, and uh, on their behalf and restoring him as well. We're so grateful for that. And Father, for the other people in our congregation that are sick or struggling, uh, some we know of, others we don't, but you know, you are a God that we call on together as a community and ask that you would strengthen them. And Father, I pray for the other churches in our county. Uh, During this season of Lent, as we approach Easter, all of us will have a chance to see people that perhaps this is the only time they would come to church is on Resurrection Sunday, and uh, we have a chance to talk about your son and what he did for us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd be preparing the other churches. Lord, whatever things that may be going on, good or struggles or strife, whatever, just bless them and help them to fulfill their ministry and their mission to see, Lord, the people in our county encouraged and come to know your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in the, your son's name. Amen. Okay, we're in, um, we're in the middle of Lent, in the middle of a series, not the way it's supposed to be. It's a series on sin. Sin. 
Boy, the moment you just say that word, people get a little nervous and start running for the exits. And uh, the, uh, the reason why we're doing this series, one of the reasons is I, I don't like what's happened to this word. In the church and in culture, it's taken two different directions. When you look at it in culture, it doesn't mean that much anymore. It really doesn't. When you look at it in the church, it means something that it's not supposed to mean. What it means in the church often is whatever you're doing, that's worse than whatever I'm doing. I don't feel bad about what I'm doing, but you, on the other hand, have sinned. It amazes me, just amazes me when I preach a sermon. Sometimes people come up to me that, and they just say, that sermon was meant for me. I said, no, it wasn't. It was meant for the other people that are saying, that sermon was meant for him. It just always makes me laugh at the responses I get from you. And you know who you are. (laughs) And so we've lost kind of a perspective of what sin is all about. Uh, The church has lost sin awareness and our own culture rarely recognizes sin any longer. So our goals were to reorient you to the destructiveness of sin. Don't be fooled. We're going to talk about this some more. To recapture a core theology of Christianity, our beliefs about sin. It's a core part of it. How do you understand resurrection and the cross Easter Sunday without sin? The weaker your view of sin, the weaker your view of Christ. And so it's really important, it's essential that we get a good grasp of that. We also want to more fully capture what Christ accomplished on the cross. So the first two Sundays, last Sunday and the Sunday before, um, we talked about uh, the loss of shalom, the first Sunday peace, that well-being that should define us in our community. I can't have shalom if you don't have shalom. That, that means that we are dependent on one another. And my own personal health is largely dependent on what I feel on how you guys are doing as well as a congregation. And sin destroys that shalom, that sense of peace. Last week, Mark talked about uh, corruption of the soul. Uh, thank you, Mark, for preaching last week. Today, we're going to talk about disintegration of the spirit. Yeah, your spirit disintegrates. It disintegrates. And what sin actually does. But let's first, let's kind of remind ourselves of what is sin. What happens when a community abandons its basic morals and gradually moves deeper into sin for lifestyles? What happens? That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, When a community, a culture, when they move away from a moral base, what happens? Now remember, sin is something that is different than what God has intended. And we raised the question the first Sunday, is God trying to restrict you or protect you? Do you see God as some big killjoy in the sky that is just saying, no, you can't have the things that are fun? Is that how you see him? Lots of rules, regulations, anger, wrath, at least it appears that way if you're not careful. Or do you see God as someone who is a divine creator who made you for the deepest joy and knows the best way to get you there? Sin then becomes an obstacle to make that happen. So we raise the question, this is what we're dealing with all through this series, is what are the ongoing effects of sin? When we sin, what happens? Why would we not want to do that? Think of sin as a barrier to true humanity. You know, one of the great things about Christianity, which I love, and one of the reasons I am a Christian and proud of it, and not afraid to say that, is because we believe in human dignity. You get to be you. That is a good thing for all of eternity. 
Lauren, I don't want you to become a donkey in the next reincarnation. Or even worse, a woman. I like you like you are. I'm nothing against women. Don't get that the wrong thing. <laughs> Wendy, I don't want you to become a man. <laughs> I like you being who you are. That almost came out wrong, didn't it? So, so God made us the way we are. And he said it was very good. You're made in the image of God. You get to be you for all of eternity. That is a spectacularly wonderful thing. That's the good news of Christianity. But now that we have sinned, and now that we are what scholars call theologians depraved, sin permeates our entire being. By the way, the one thing I don't have to prove to you is sin, do I? You all didn't figure that one out. If you ever had a kid, you know what that's all about. Sin is a fact. It's our world. Every one of you struggles with it. So what God is doing is he's, he, in the, he is in the business of transforming you into the image of his son. Now what that means is we can look at Jesus, male or female, it doesn't matter. We can look at Jesus and see a picture of true humanity. That's what that means. So as you move closer to Christ and you, re, and you mature, you begin to love people better. You become more gracious, more forgiving, more kind, more generous. The list goes on and on and on. And the more you become that way, the more fulfilling life becomes. It fills up. produces an abundance. And here's what sin is. Here I am, and I'm moving toward Christ. Sin is a barrier that stops it. That's what it is. If you're stymied in your Christian faith, that means there's something in the way. Let's go have coffee and talk about it. I've helped several of you figure out what that is. That's what sin is. It gets in the way of you moving toward Christ. Because as having the Spirit of God, your natural disposition now is to move toward Him and to become more like Him, therefore to enjoy more and more humanity. And if that's not happening, there's something in the way. So sin is fundamentally the way things are not supposed to be. Think of sin as corruption of what is good. Now, Mark talked about that last week. It's a corruption of what is good. So this corruption, this sin, destroys what holds us together. Think about the environment in which we're created to thrive. We're created to thrive, for instance, in an environment of hospitality where we welcome each other. We long to see each other. We invite each other into our lives and homes. Isn't that what we long for? We do, right? Those deeper relationships that are significant and meaningful. We, uh, we're designed, we're created to thrive in an environment of justice. We're unhappy, we're unsettled when injustices occur. And we see those around us all the time. I hear about them from you. We want a world where justice reigns and justice describes our life. We are created to thrive in an environment of delight and joy. We're made for that. The deepest levels of fulfillment is what Christ uh, was what God made us for. And that's why Christ came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so what sin does, we corrupt all of that. We destroy all of that. As we move toward Christ, we move toward each other. As we introduce sin into our, our lives, uh, by the way, there is no sin that doesn't impact the people around you. None. Don't be fooled. Pornography is just as destructive as adultery. Don't be fooled. We now have plenty, plenty of evidence and data to show to us that the Bible knows what it's talking about. Makes sense. God is the one that made us. I love social sciences. We now have over 100 years of data from every country in the world. And guess what we find out? The Bible's right. 
That's what we discovered. It's right. As we move toward Christ, we move toward each other and healthy community. As we move away from Christ, we begin to abandon the things that are good and we begin to hurt one another. Disintegration begins to occur as we move further down the road towards sin. You see, disintegration is the breakdown of personal and social integrity. Now think about our culture and what could happen to our church if we're not careful. So it represents the breakdown of personal and social integrity. It represents the loss of shape of a community, what we're known for. It represents the loss of our strength and purpose as a culture. I love, I love the concept of unity. The elders, we, we are convinced that one of our primary jobs is to protect the unity of this flock, protect you. Do everything we can to listen to you. No, we don't, even if you're angry and upset, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay here. Even if you're sinning, which you all are, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay here. We want you to stay part of it and keep working on it because without unity, we're in trouble already. Disintegration begins to incur. Disintegration is always deterioration and it's both the prelude and the postlude to death. And our job is to maintain life. That's our job. So, sin leads to disintegration. How does that happen? Well, to begin, let's talk about what a spiritually sound person is. Let's kind of define that a little bit. A spiritually sound person fits a certain design. They enjoy relationships with God. Their relationship with God, it's it's fulfilling to them. They enjoy their relationships with each other. That's fulfilling. They enjoy nature and creation. They enjoy themselves. That's what a spiritually sound person begins to experience. They enjoy this sense of shalom, this sense of wholeness that I'm realizing more and more every year that it's very fulfilling being who I am and what God made me for. And part of that is because I live in your presence and I get to live out my gifts and personality with you. That's very fulfilling. They enjoy the good things that God gives us. This is a spiritually sound person. Sin interrupts all this. It corrupts all of these relationships. You ever wonder, uh, think about, well, first of all, what is the one thing God tried to protect us from in the garden? Do you remember the story? Prime people's story? What's the one thing he tried to protect us from? What's that? Going against his will? Yeah, not, not quite. That's the result. Okay? Separation? Keep going. He could have picked any tree and said, don't eat of any of these trees, but he only picked one. What was the one tree? Knowledge of good and evil. Why that one? Don't we want to know good and evil? I would suggest that we're not created for that. You see, to perfectly exercise the knowledge of good and evil requires omniscience. Therefore, that's a divine prerogative. You know why? I don't know your motives. I don't know your circumstances. Have you ever been accused? How many of you have been accused of something that's not true? How many of you have ever mis- been, been misunderstood in your behavior and the way you say things? That's ascribing to others something that's false. And the reality is, I don't know your motives. I don't know your circumstances. When I begin to form an opinion about any of you, I hold it very, very loosely and I'm willing to be proven wrong and change it. 
That's why parents are so tired after vacation with little kids. <laughs> he said, she said. He said, she said. We're not Solomon. We're not going to cut the kid in half. Right? How do you figure out who's right and who's wrong? Welcome to the world of Christian leadership. There's a proverb that says, there's a story that seems right until another comes along and presents his case. There's two sides to every story. So when you look at the scriptures, you see that God is still trying to protect us from this divine prerogative. Jesus says, do not judge. Just don't do it. Matthew 7. Very clear, very simple command. Do not judge. But if you decide to judge, he says, be willing to submit yourself to the same standard that you're applying to the other person. Paul says, "Whatever, whenever you confront somebody, do it with humility or you'll fall into the same trap and sin like they do. James says, if you like wisdom, ask God. He gives it generously. All the authors of Scripture say, ascertain the facts based on two or three witnesses. Don't take the account of one other person by itself. God's still trying to protect us from this sin, this knowledge uh, of good and evil, because that's his prerogative, not ours. So we should hold our viewpoint of one another very loosely and just ask, what did you mean by that? Instead of assume they meant to hurt you. They might have meant to hurt you. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But it's far healthier to say, oh, that just hurt. Why did you say that? And give them a chance to say, well, I really didn't mean that, or I really am angry at you. Okay? Be very careful how you exercise the knowledge of good and evil. God is still trying to protect us. Now, what we learn from that story is very significant regarding sin. What we learn is, because we gained that knowledge, that's what led to our depravity because we don't have the capacity for handling it. What that means is we really don't know what's right and wrong. I think as C.S. Lewis says, we all have a moral compass that's just broken. We can no longer find true north and we're searching for it. If God doesn't speak, we'll never find it. We think we know what is good and best. We do not. That's what we learn. You see, sin is a corruption of the soul and what is good. So what does a spiritually sound person look like? I'm going to read a passage to you out of Titus. Titus chapter 1. There are two key words in this passage um, that will help us understand what a spiritually sound person looks like. Paul wrote to Titus on the Isle of Crete, and he's putting in order the churches that are there helping them. They're all new churches, young churches. He's helping them get their act together. And here's what Paul says. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk. Wow, that sounds like our world today, doesn't it? (laughs) There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And by the way, that's one of the things we watch for, people teaching things that we don't think they should teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. They're trying to get something from you. One of Crete's own prophets, I love this, he quotes one of their own prophets on the aisle. One of your own prophets that says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. I love that phrase. That, that, I don't know who that poet is. I would like to have met him. Sometimes I think that's our world today. This saying is true. 
That's what Paul says. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. There's one of those words that I'm going to highlight in just a minute. Sound in the faith. And will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, here's the other word, sound and pure. Those are the two words. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. We're beginning to get a little bit of a clue. So what actually does a sound person look like? There's two words here. The first one is the word sound. It's the Greek word. I hardly ever use Greek, but when it might mean something to you, I don't mind using it. It's the word hugaino, from which we get, ultimately get the word hygiene. It's the idea of cleanness. It's the idea of uh, being sound, having health about you, being a healthy person. That's what it means to be sound in the faith. Your faith is healthy. It's clean. The second word which you translated pure is the word kathara, from which we get the word catharsis in our language. Now, you may not know this, but all the way back to the ancient Greeks, they were struggling with this whole idea of catharsis. What is catharsis? It's the cleansing of the soul. How does that happen? Everybody had different viewpoints, but they all kind of had some common themes. It has something to do with this emotional release. So you go to a play, and you, and you experience this great emotion. Um, I, Nancy and I went and saw Hidden Figures. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. I cried. I grew up during that era, and I, I was there. I remember looking at my dad and saying, why is there a water fountain for white people and a water fountain for black people? And my dad, with tears, said, because we're messed up. One day that won't be there. I remember that as a little boy, like five years old. Okay? There's an emotion that comes with that that always feels good when you release that emotion. That In the ancient world, they had professional wailers at funerals. In fact, at one of Jesus' funerals, he said, the person's not dead, they're only asleep. And the wailers start laughing. They're not there to grieve, they're there because they get paid money to help somebody experience catharsis. So this kathara, we translate pure or purity, and that becomes very significant in just a minute. When you put these two ideas together, soundness, cleanness, purity, you get the idea of what wholeness looks like, what we're created for. A spiritually clean person longs for God and the beauty of God. A spiritually healthy person looks for Christ and Christ-likeness. That's where we find our greatest fulfillment. A spiritually clean person looks for the power of the Holy Spirit and spiritual maturity. A spiritually sound person has motives that involve faith. A quiet confidence in God and in the mercies of God that come from the work of Christ. You know, one of the things I've learned since I've been up here, this is unusual in a couple of respects where we live. When you get into your 80s, it feels like your days are starting to be numbered because it's something to do with this lack of oxygen up here. And I've said goodbye to several of our 80-year-olds, and it breaks my heart. You know what that means to me? Our 70-year-olds are worth their weight in gold. That's what it means. If you've not sat in the presence of our 70-year-olds, you need to do it. You need to take them to coffee and listen to their stories. They've been around the block 47 times and met Jesus all 47 times. Things don't rattle their cage anymore. I love that. I love hanging out with our 70-year-olds because they're relaxed. 
They know what faith is all about. A quiet confidence in God. As Mark said last week, faith embraces reality and makes sense of it. Sin destroys our perspective, deceives our sense of reality. So this sin, it leads to the corruption, you might think of pollution of the soul and the ultimate disintegration of the spirit. You see, sin always leads to division. Always. For example, adultery both corrupts a marriage and divides it. The marriage disintegrates. Idolatry both corrupts our relationship with God and divides it. Our relationship with God disintegrates. Divided worship destroys worshipers. Divided love destroys lovers. Divided community destroys mission. If we are divided, we have already lost the battle. That's why we put a lot of energy into protecting our flock. To split the truly important longings and loyalties results in a crack in our foundations. That's what happens. It invites the crumbling of the self and our community, what we call disintegration. That's the final result, the disintegration and death of life itself. So what's the answer to disintegration? Well, it begins with a pure heart. You see, in Scripture, a pure heart is an undivided heart. I'm going to read a couple of passages. Psalm 24, one of my favorite psalms. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's all of us, by the way. Listen in the middle of this psalm, Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who. A pure heart. Or in Matthew... On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking. And he has some words about purity. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. James, all the way towards the end. James, it's obvious he was uh, shaped by Jesus' teaching because so much of what he says is, um, comes out of the, Jesus' teaching. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And finally, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that is absolutely spectacular. The, the uh, superscription tells us that it was a psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan for committing adultery with Bathsheba. If you're struggling with sin... Psalm 51 is a good place to plant yourself because this represents the deepest longings we have in the Bible. That's a result of sin and brokenness. You see, David, the city of David at this time is only about six or eight acres. That's the size of our lot plus the park. Do you think they knew what happened? Of course they did. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know who Uriah was? He was one of David's mighty men, the 30 people that kept with him all the time over all the years. He's one of David's best friends. David knew exactly what he was doing and whose wife he was taking. Then he had his best friend murdered. Nathan goes to him and confronts him and his first response is, I have sinned. This Psalm 51 is the anguish of a soul that is caught in some of the most vile, perverse sin in the wrestling with God. Listen to these words. 
Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Are those fabulous words from a man caught? He got caught. Got caught. Listen to his next words. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You see, that's the end product of, of forgiveness. Is there comes a point where you can say to others, don't do that. Those of you that are addicted to sexual issues, you can say, don't look at pornography. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Those of you that struggle with alcohol can say to others, don't do it. It's not worth it. But the process has to come through a period uh, a period of purity and cleanness. That's what David's saying. Mark talked last week about the greatest gift God has given us, the Holy Spirit, God himself. The Holy Spirit, he said, and I love this, is an us thing, not a me thing. It's an us thing. He is a community agent. We together are the spiritual temple and we live with that ethic that the Holy Spirit brings us often without ever seeing the long-term effects of living by faith. That's why in Hebrews 11 it says they never saw the promise they lived for. They had to wait. That's why it's called faith. We see the destructiveness of sin very quickly. That's why it's so easy to divert. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, but what we do with that conviction makes all the difference in the world. Now we're going to start honing in on what do we do about this. Do you ignore the Spirit's conviction? I've watched some of you. Holy Spirit does His work to convict you of sin. You just ignore it. Some of you do that. Do you pretend all is okay when things calm down and you forget about it? Do you do that? Do you simply apologize and ask for forgiveness? When I was at Dallas Seminary as a student, we had the week-long missions conference. We had 40-something mission agencies, each sent two or three. Thousands of people come all week. The campus is a zoo. My responsibility was to organize all the seminars. All these great leaders from all these missions came and presented seminars all day long for a whole week. In the middle of the week, one of the students came to me and said, uh, I was in Dr. Linus Morris's uh, seminar this morning. He, at that time, was the president of Christian Associates International. He said, I was in a seminar, and about uh, two-thirds of the way through the seminar, one of the faculty members raised his hand and said, Dr. Morris, you realize that you're cutting into so-and-so's time. And Dr. Morris very graciously said, oh, nope, you're right. I, I absolutely wasn't watching the time. So um, uh, he wrapped up real quickly and turned it over. But I had this gnawing feeling in my gut. I went back and I pulled my list of 600 to-do items, and I had one item not checked off. Call Dr. Morris and tell him he's doing half a, ser- a seminar, not a whole one. I raced across campus to find him. He was walking. And I said, Dr. Morris, I heard what happened this morning, and I came to apologize. And he said, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Everything in me wanted to say thank you and walk away. And I said, Dr. Morris, I didn't come so you could let me off the hook. I'm worth more than that. I came because I'm genuinely sorry because I was wrong. He, he started to cry. 
and said, well, it was one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me. Do you have time for coffee? I like your style. <laughs> and we've been friends ever since. In fact, we just communicated yesterday on Facebook. Do you simply apologize and ask for forgiveness or, or do you confess? Run it by your children. They'll apologize much faster than they will confess. In fact, that's true of you. It's very easy to say I'm sorry. It's very hard to say I was wrong. And confession is what is critical. You all know 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what? What? Say it out loud. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the Greeks were wrong. The cleansing of the soul, catharsis, does not come from wailing. It comes from confession. The old idiom, confession is good for the soul, that is absolutely dead on right. That's what produces cleansing, is confession. I was wrong. And don't water it down. The moment you add the word but, it's no longer a confession. You say to your boss, I'm sorry I was late, but I had a flat tire. What you're really asking for is acceptance. That's the difference. If you're going to confess, simply confess, I was wrong. That's what cleanses the soul. Interestingly enough, that verb cleanse is the Greek verb katharizo, from which we get catharsis. Cleansing comes from confession. The other side of that we find in Galatians 5, in the lust of the flesh. One of the things in the lust of the flesh we label in English impurity. You know what impurity is? It's the opposite of katharizo. Just like in English, they add an A in front of a word to negate it. Okay? Are you a theist or an atheist? Are you sexual or asexual? Are you moral or amoral? Right? You put an A in front of it, it negates it. So what do you think happens with katharizo? You put an A in front of it, akatharizo. That's called impurity. In other words, everything in us wants to avoid confession. We don't mind apologizing. We don't even mind asking for forgiveness. But we don't want to say, I was wrong. And what happens is, little by little, the impurities build up in the soul. That's what happens. That's why it's a lust of the flesh. What sin do you need to confess? I'm going to give you a moment to pray and confess. I don't know. It's your world. You look in your own mirror. I have to look in my own. What sin do you need to confess? We're getting ready to take the offering. Do you struggle with greed? Now, from my perspective, I think of you as generous. You somehow, by God's grace, managed to pay all of our bills, and thank you for that. But you could be greedy. I don't know. When you look at all the things God has given you, do you look at them and you say, God has given these to bless me and so I can bless others? Or do you store up treasures on earth? Do you say, these are mine? In fact, this new government might take them away. Maybe the last government's going to take them away. I don't know. But I'm going to protect them because they're mine. How do you think? That one's called greed. 
Generosity is when you recognize God has blessed you and you give it to others. You enjoy it and you bless others. We're going to take the offering. Is that your sin, greed? Maybe we have communion coming. Maybe you have apathy toward the Lord. You're not really excited about him. Maybe you have a bad attitude about someone else here in your midst. Paul warned against that. Don't take communion with that attitude because you're the one that's hurting yourself. I don't know what your sin is. What I am confident of is every one of you has it. So I'm going to give you just a short period of time to reflect and to confess sin. You don't have to ask forgiveness. Confess, I was wrong. Father, we do confess to you our sin. As David said, restore in us a pure heart, a clean heart. Restore us to the joy of your salvation. God, help us not to disintegrate. Help us to draw closer to you and therefore each other. And God, thank you for forgiving us and for cleansing the soul. We are so sorry for the ways that we have sinned. We are so sorry for the ways that we have hurt you and hurt others. Thank you for forgiving and cleansing us. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take the offering. Thank you. Thanks for... uh, all that you do.